Tony. How you doing, man? Hi, Kevin. My gosh, is this going to be a fun episode? Because this is a, a story about a friend of mine, uh, Michael McClear, actually better known as Mr. Caves. And uh, Mr. Caves and me go way back. We're going to talk about how we met and how we got on the road together. Um, 1995, they were sent out to be on the Warp Tour. This episode, I learned a lot. And, you know, starving artists that, that, that work really hard and, and pay their dues, things are changing so fast in, in this part of the industry. I think a lot of you are going to learn a lot too. And really what I, I try to tell my students a lot of time and people that it's your community. And a lot of the stuff we talk about is community, how you identify with the community. And him growing up in Bay Ridge, we're going to talk about that, how it all led to all these different things. And his being an artist, being a tattoo artist. And then all of a sudden, like opening a pizzeria in tribute to his community. And then we're going to end this episode in a really interesting way. That'll lead into episode 23. We're bringing this to the light to a lot of people that well, this is kind of a Cinderella story here. He's very true to his neighborhood um, in Bay Ridge in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. uh, and his whole career has kind of emanated out of there and he always brings it back to there. And that's why we call this episode, The Lord of Brooklyn. The story begins in Brooklyn, right? And, and it started, I guess I was an average kid until I was about uh, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, uh, born in Flatbush Church in Troy. My mother grew up in, uh, she was born and raised in Bay Ridge. Uh, we moved back to Bay Ridge when I was 10. My, uh, my father and mother, you know, they were, they were breaking up. They, they went through like a, you know, a, a divorce and it was a very, you know, it's for a 10 year old kid. It's, you know, you always hear about that. Like it's one of the worst things that could, you know, happen to a child. And, for my brother and, and myself, my little sister, um, you know, it was uh, it was it was that it, it was pretty tough. It was pretty tough because my mom was a very beautiful woman, very, uh, you know, uh, young Italian hippie chick, you know, that had everything going for her. She was one of the you know, she had like movie star good looks. And in the neighborhood, they thought she was going places. And um, but she fell in love young, kind of eloped. You know, my father was a greaser, outlaw kind of. Uh, you know, uh, flappish cat. And she was, uh, open, free spirited, uh, Bay Ridge girl. And, and, and I guess it was kids having kids and, you know, it was mine, like for me to see her move back to Bay Ridge and she was, you know, we, we didn't have, we didn't have nothing. We had, you know, we sat on milk crates, you know, we had a little black and white TV and a lot of hand-me-downs. I think an aunt eventually gave us, uh, uh, uh a couch, like a red velvet couch with the, with the, with the plastic covering on it. And we moved into this little apartment building in, uh, in Bay Ridge on 92nd street. And, and, and that's where she grew up. She grew up, they called her little 92nd street. She, her older brothers were like, uh, neighborhood legends and athletes. And she hung out in the schoolyard on 92nd street. And, and, and so then she returns to 92nd street and Galston Avenue. And we're in this like one, bedroom uh, apartment and you know it was it was tough to see her go through what she was going through like she you know my parents were young and crazy and they were full of life and full of like you know the typical Brooklyn thing they were they were tough and they were beautiful and and they 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 surrounded us in music and and we had 45 collection and Janis Joplin Jimi Hendrix my, my father was into doo-wop so Frankie Lyman and the teenagers and just all this music. And my grandmother, my nanny came from a, a, a big family, uh, Italian family, of course, the Cotroni family, and they were singers and dancers. So at a young age, my grandmother would tell us that she was going to, you know, one day, you know, she was going to move out to Hollywood and that was her dream. And, and she would record uh, records at Woolworths. So Woolworths back in this five and dime store, back in the neighborhood, you could record your own record. So she would record 45 records and she would, and she was, you know, she was, she was incredible. Um, and then, you know, it's one of those things where she met my grandfather at a world war II uh, battle of the bulge. You know, he, he comes out of the army, wants to throw all his medals out and, you know, he's like, fuck this. And he, he, he goes and gets some work in Bay Ridge and meets my grandmother and, you know, that, that, you know, just uh, like a beautiful love story. And, and 
but she has to, you know, she turns into a housewife and she never achieves these Hollywood fantasies. And this, but she she always told us that she wrote the song Soldier Boy and they stole it from her in a contest. So it was interesting that stuff that gets put into your mind as a child, like like the dreams and aspirations of, of being this Brooklyn kid to make good. So when my mother and father were divorced, I was kind of like, you know, I, I, as the oldest in the house, I felt like I had a duty and a job to take care of my mother. And, you know, what, you know, you're 10 years old, but, you know, it's funny because I look at my 11 year old daughter and I'm like, what? what, how can you have all this kind of baggage, right? Put on a little kid, but I don't know. I, I took that on. I would, uh, my mother would drag me down the welfare offices with, with her. And I was a little man. I was her protector. And she told me, you know, when she was on the line in this, in the, in, you know, getting welfare in Bay Ridge, like you were looked at as a really white trash. If that was the story and you were on a welfare line. And when you went down downtown Brooklyn, they would kind of abuse you because you're like, you know, you're, you're this young, vibrant woman, like, you know, you know, why can't you provide for your kids? And it was really, she was just in a tough situation. She didn't want to take, she didn't want to take from her parents or, and the parents didn't have much. It just was one of those things. She was, so she was a waitress and she was a server and we, you know, we were left home to kind of fend for ourselves in, in, a, in a way when she was at work. And, and so this is where the magic begins for me. I, I had no idea about the, uh, the complexity of, you know, a young divorce and, and young parents. And he says, babies having babies and what kind of an influence that had on his life and his eventually his art, I imagine. And then his grandmother seems like a big influence too. And I immediately started singing, Soldier Boy. <laughs> I want to know what that story is too in a song contest. But you can see he's surrounded by young, energetic, uh, well, the, artistic the, folks. It must have had a major influence on his yeah, art. I mean, that energy of... of of Brooklyn too, you know, you yeah, can, you, well, he give, he paints a great picture of what it was. He like does. Back yeah. Then, you know? We have that picture of it, you know, like the Saturday night, uh, fever, you know, oh, yeah. you know, and actually I, I mean, one of his side hustles later on, he never, we never really got into it in the, you know, in this interview. But, uh, when I first went and visited him in, in Brooklyn, uh -huh. he took me around and he was like, yeah, I used to run this thing. I take uh, Japanese tourists and show them all the spots where, Saturday Night Fever was filmed around Brooklyn <laughs> in my caddy, you know, all, you know, he played the part and he would drive him around and show him. So he always, I was figuring things out, but let's see how it, he started picking up the brush. I was lucky I moved on this block because this block had a group of kids that were part of a graffiti crew and graffiti in New York city in the early eighties was starting to catch on like wildfire. And it was starting to like the late seventies, early eighties. This was like this Renaissance of this, of graffiti art in New York city where it was starting to like make headlines because it was starting to like cross into uh, galleries as well. But the train movement was a, a, a crazy movement. And these young kids on my block were like, yo, you know, they like, you got a tag. And, you know, we were, you know, after a while, you know, we're, we're pop culture kids, you know, movies like the warriors and, and, yeah. and, and wild style, like introduced us to, the 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 idea of it but when we met these kids on my block we seen how organized it was and it was like you want to be accepted as well so because i was autistic and i was really um talented i took to it like like that and i found you know magic and a magic marker and and i there was a neighborhood kid that was like a local hero a local legend and this is an important thing it's like i in my life always found and and searched out maybe because I, because my father wasn't in the house i was always looking for mentors uh, or, or you know looking for you know i, I always had that thing is is that you have to if you want to be the best at something you got to find the best you got to you know you have to be humble and you have to you know learn so this local legend in the neighborhood he wrote rr and my sister my little kid sister was 10 years uh more than 10 years younger than us. So my mother would have to hire a babysitter and the ba and the, and the babysitter lived on my block. Her name was Marianne and the, the graffiti writer had a crush on Marianne. So when he would come visit Marianne, now I would be in front of my building, snotting those little kid, like painting in chalk, 
practicing graffiti in the in the street. This was, you know, this is where you practice. This is where you this is where you hung out in front of your building. There was like 40 wild kids running around my block. And there I was, you know, drawing in the street. And he came up upon me and was and he was at, you know, he knew who I was because of the babysitting thing. And he was just like, so you're trying to write graffiti, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm trying to find a name. And and he was he was just like, well, you're in luck. Because my my brother, uh Frankie. Uh, retired and he's 15 years old. He's too, he's too old for graffiti. So he retired. I'm going to give you his name. So he handed down the name Cavs, K-A-V-S to me. And it, like I was knighted. I was like reborn. It was like, it was like baptized by fire in the street. Like, boom, I had, I had, a, I had like a rebirth and like a reinvention on like, okay, now I just found like my path, like for a voice. So I put an E into the to the tag because I like the way caves sounded better than calves. And um and I said I was gonna be one of the best graffiti artists that that you know that South Brooklyn ever seen. And I went to work. Then it was all of a sudden it was like the, the block wasn't uh the block got a little small. So they started moving on to other things in their lives. The older children would figure out the times and, and the schedules of the workers, right? And when you're mentored, they start to show you the ropes, like the trains that run in and out of the yard during, uh, you know, uh, rush hour, you, you, you know, the subway becomes your summer camp and it's very dangerous, you know, between the gangs and the, and, and the cops and, and the third rail and everything else, but it becomes second nature to you where it becomes your summer camp and the subway lines become your social networking. So all these different lines are, is your internet at the time because different neighbors are different writers Different neighborhoods had different train yards and they had something called the layup where they would take the train out of service in the tunnels at, at after rush hour or before. And they would park them and hide them in the tunnels. And those would be very dangerous to go into. But that's where you would catch um, you would catch a train. And, you know, I was fortunate because when I was at a very young age, let's say about the time I was 12, turning 13, Let's say for one one train car, it was uh, it was New Year's Eve. So I told my mother, like, Mom, I'm going to go to a party. And like, you know, 12 years old, what fucking New Year's Eve party are you going to go to? But yeah, I'm going to go to a party with my friends. And she goes, who are you going with? I'm going with you know, this one and that one. She goes, I want you home, you know, after the ball drops. But if you're going to be late, make sure you call me when the ball drops. So that was my instructions for New Year's. But that was a plan. We planned this whole car. So... The idea was we found this layup and I'm not going to say the name of the layup because you never know if you need to go back to that layup. But the, <laughs> the layup was a train station underneath the train station. So they have old train stations in New York City subway that have multi levels that they don't use. So this train was was parked in the station. So you had to climb through a hole underneath the platform and, and jump down and pop in. And then you had, you know, you had. In New Year's Eve, there's not a lot of cops on the beat. You know, everybody's partying, everybody's dropping it. So that was a great time to have like a five-hour, six-hour span of time. So myself and and another writer, Money E.G. and Strider and Braze, but big, big graffiti writers, big legendary graffiti writers, um, painted these two whole car trains. And um and you know, while we're down there painting, you could imagine all the, the aerosol and all yeah. the fumes. And you just you can get caught just by people smelling it up on the station. You, you know, we're going to try to paint something that's monumental or something that other writers are going to be impressed by. But you know what? As soon as I looked at, you know, the time, I, you know, I was like, everybody, what time is it? what time is this? Oh, it's like five to twelve. I had to climb back up, go out to the hole, find a payphone to call my mother when the ball dropped to, you know, say, I love you. Happy New Year. And she's like, are you, are, you know, when are you coming home? I said, I'll be home soon. So. You know, I went back down there and, and painted that train and it rolled out the next morning um, and uh, and the fellas finished it off. And, yeah, that was something like and that was for, for a 12 year old, 13 year old kid at the time. I just turned 13. It was a big feat. And it kind of like it gave you your status. So the, the larger your status grew as a graffiti writer, the more attention you got, the more fame you got. So you kind of like you're branding yourself at a young age on how to take your name and put it all over the city to become popular 
to hence have opportunity. <laughs> the 80s, man. A 12-year-old, 13-year-old? No, that shit does not happen anymore. I remember crazy shit. I'm his same age. And so, yeah, you know, the streetlights came on, all that jazz. But could you imagine that today? Just give me a call at midnight when the ball drops. <laughs> as long as you say goodnight and then then get home as soon as you can. Yeah, you know, and as you're raising your profile on the streets amongst your peers, you're also starting to raise your profile with someone else. The upside, you get all this fame. The downside is, is that the people know who you are and so do the police, right? So eventually, uh, you know, I had a nice, well, I had a pretty decent career. It went from like 19, you know, late 79, 1980 into uh 1985 on the subway cars where eventually they, you know, they were waiting for me in a yard no. and uh, yeah, they, they, they ended up getting me, you know, at, at some point. And uh. I was doing the funny thing about that one is I was doing a whole car end to end with my partner revs and uh, it made the newspaper the next day because uh, uh, you know, when we got caught uh, with my friend coast, God rest his soul. He passed away last year. Um, it made the newspaper as, uh, Vice isn't nice. Three get brushed in the graffiti paint job. I was doing a whole car Miami Vice piece. I had Don Johnson with his gun on his Ferrari because Miami Vice was very popular at the time. <laughs> I remembers the headline yeah. too. That's hilarious. <laughs> so I didn't realize the other uh, train station he described when that whole night on New Year's, you know, he was on, on the level painting a train, but that train eventually came out and got used so that's how the whole city got to see his name he's now traveling around the city and they're painting and they're doing their things yeah, yeah. and he starts coming around to another form of art as an artist you you can't just rest on your laws you have to like reinvent yourself and find a new way to create and as as a kid you know i always consider myself an artist when people say what do you want to be when you grow up but Artists could be, you know, you could have a, a multi-medium. And when I, the, the thing was, is that when I had to put down the spray can, I was like, well, how the hell am I going to like continue to do what I do? And that's the moment where I said, okay, we need to change it up. So maybe if I pick up this microphone, I could do what I'm doing with graffiti, but do it in, because at, right at that point, rapping and emceeing and hip hop. See, we were little B-boys because of the graffiti scene. We would go into different neighborhoods and, uh, and our friends, we had a small crew and they were mostly consisted of us and, and, uh, and, and black kids and Puerto Rican kids because that's what graffiti writers, they're multicultural. And that's what you got when you went to other neighborhoods. You found friends in other neighborhoods and usually uh, economics plays a part of that too because we're all broke kids and we find other broke kids that are all trying to create something creative in New York City. So my, my boy Lask, Mike McDonald in, in Staten Island and, and Troy Jenkins and, and Joey Hernandez, we became these, you know, this, this crew of, and there's other kids as well in my neighborhood uh, that, that, that I came up with. And I, one day I'll write a book or something and I'll mention all of them. So all of a sudden he's like, okay, I'm going to pick up a microphone. We're going to hear about how he started bringing this to his neighborhood. MCing and hip hop, well, obviously was another way to express yourself and it was something that that we were playing with, but it didn't become a reality until I found another mentor. Right. Like, so an, another mentor was, was, was a local uh, nightclub owner. And this is how we, we share in the, in the background of being like working at nightclubs at, at early ages. I had to be, you know, 17, 18 years old. Um, when a local night. So I got, so I was like 15, 16, I got caught. Um, so that year I had to figure out what I was going to do, but a nightclub owner needed signs painted for his place. And they said, yo, Caves is, you know, Caves is, is that is the cat that could paint you. He didn't know I was coming with spray paint. He was like, what the, what is that? Where's your paintbrush? <laughs> I go, don't worry about it. I get the job done with this. And his name was Ernie Barry. And he was this Boston, a guy that moved to New York. And he was a, he was like a vaudeville or like more like a crooner that played an accordion. And was big on that circuit where he was like a Tony Bennett, like crooner. And he opened up this nightclub in Bay Ridge to do this music. And over time, he would bring disco acts. And it was like a nightclub where they would have performances. And he asked me to paint some signs. And I got to know him. 
And the thing about him was he was like on the hook with some gangsters that were that were that were that were holding his his uh you know his Line title to his place that yeah. that he was in the, on the hook for. And he said, Mikey, I need I need to bring you, you know, I, he goes, you know, I don't know what it is about you. You always got all these kids hanging around you. And we had a crew called the Varizano Boys, it's like the Varizano Boys, like we need to bring kids here. Can you can you can you can you do something about it? And I, he, I was just like, well, let me see that talent list. He, there was there was a talent list that he had from Kara Lewis. Her name was she was a booking agent. Right. 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 Kara Lewis. And, and he would book his acts through her. So when he gave me um, his sheet, we like my brother was in a, uh, my brother's friend opened up a record store. My brother was DJing out of a record store. My brother was was starting to DJ at the time too. That's how all this kind of stuff comes together. And I I found a record that popped out on me, and it was a it was a, it was a Public Enemy single. And when I seen the cover, these cats all dressed like gangsters and like. On the, in a in a parking lot with bags and Cadillacs, and I said, "Well, this this shit, this 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 is this reminds me of what goes on here, right?" So, when I when I played that song and put that needle to the groove and heard "Rebel Without a Pause," there was like a eureka moment where I felt like, "Oh shit, I just found my rock and roll. I just found what my father and mother found with Led Zeppelin, and 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 I found it with this record." And when I, Ernie Barry gave me that Kara Lewis list. Public Enemy was on the top. I said, "I'm going to bring this group to Ernie. I'm going to bring this group to Bay Ridge, and we're going to fucking we're going to we're going to turn it out." And it was great because at the time Bay Ridge was very very it was still very segregated, and there was a lot of racial tension going on. This was like the year before Spike Lee wrote "Do the Right Thing." There was a lot a lot of angst, and but we were hip hop kids, and we were we like young kids always know like you know we definitely felt like we didn't care about what the neighborhood, like the older people in the neighborhood felt. We had a scene, we were building a scene. We were true to our scene and we were going to, you know, put our money where our mouth was. We're going to start bringing these groups. And I convinced Ernie Barry to give me three grand to get public enemy to come there. And that started like, like magic. It like, it, it started to blow up. I brought KRS one there, big daddy Kane there, Bismarcky, rest his soul. I brought a lot of hip hop groups to this one little neighborhood and started making a, a scene there. And it was the first time these groups played in front of an all white audience, like strictly white audience. So where, where public enemy, you know, Chuck D told me that, yeah, that was the first time we knew that like we had something like to cross over. So, so now I'm networking and I'm doing graffiti signs for, for the stages and doing the backdrops. So when the when that, when they ask, ask who's the, who this is and, they, and I'm bringing and I'm producing these shows, I am now like focused on now we started a rap band. When Chuck the X is we got a rap band, of course, we got the best rap band there is in, in South Brooklyn. When we basically didn't know I asked for my elbow. Yeah, we, we didn't know I asked for my elbow. But you got to fake it till you make it. And, and my brother was DJing and we started making beats with uh with my friend Troy and, and, and um, we ended up, uh, you know, like going out to Hempstead, Long Island and trying and bothering the shit out of public enemy to do a demo for us. Eventually that happened, but this is how I started to network and then started to dreaming about the Lords of Brooklyn and, and, and how we can make a, an impact in our, uh, and bring our own story and go get a record deal. Now I'm taking my art and I'm also doing logos for other bands. So I'm taking everything I know, Right. The graffiti, the, the street credibility that because that, I at this point, I already had fame as a as a graffiti artist. So I was taking whatever I knew and I was networking. And eventually I, I found a guy named Kevin Maxwell was an A&R, Tommy Boy Records, that had me do some artwork for them. And he said, yo, listen, there's a group coming in that, that's like you guys that that has a, a single that's going to blow up. And you could you guys should meet them because I think you'll get along with them. And that was the House of Pain. Oh, so when cool. I met Danny boy um, at Tommy boy, um, we hit it off because he was born in Brooklyn and he wanted to, he wanted to know what Brooklyn was all about. And we hit it off. We became fast friends. And then he offered us, offered me to come on the road with them. And I went from carrying luggage to, you know, getting a microphone. He got sick and he got sick in Dublin. He got food poisoning and I had to be, I had to fill in his shoes with Everlast. 
And then I became a backup singer for them. And then I was added as a fourth member to the House of Pain. But under one rule is that I could still market the Lords of Brooklyn. I had the Lords of Brooklyn on my back, which we won the, the, the Warp Tour. And that got me in the door to, to be with a legitimate band that was making, you know, they, they were double platinum, platinum at the time, where people started asking who the Lords of Brooklyn are. But he told me he was good friends with, uh, with House of Pain. Right. It, it, it flashed back and I had to break it to him that Everlast in the band one time uh, pulled a gun on Fran. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh yeah. We were, uh, uh, we were doing a show at down at the uh, whiskey one night and he had a girlfriend or something. And, you know, it's one of those relationships that I think they were fighting was part of their relationship, you know, awesome. and drama. <laughs> so this, there was drama going on and, I was parked behind the whiskey. I was working the show and Fran was with me and they were arguing in the parking lot and fighting. And Fran, of course, you know, being who she is, is, she steps in and, and he pulled a gun on her. Jesus Christ. And uh, so when he told me that story, I was like, he's a great friend of yours. Well, this is like, <laughs> it was kind of like, a, you know, and then it turned out for a while here, um, Everlast lived right around the corner. No. He actually got married over at the country club. Really? Yeah. So Cave stayed at our house. So it was like this whole kind of don't just don't bring him over here. You know, sort of like you know, <laughs> I didn't need that back in life. But you really thought Caves was on his way. He started doing you know some great stuff, but then you know he'll tell us about a moment in time that wasn't so great. We got right when I got on the road with the House of Pain and things were looking up. My mother would be bragging to all her friends. How, you know, I used to have coffee with my mother every morning talking about the dream, about the plan. And, you know, my mother was bragging to all her friends that, that um, you know, we were going to do it. We were going to, you know, she took a lot of shit because we were, we were, you know, in a lot of people's eyes, we were punk kids. And um, she never stopped believing in us. And, you know, right, I was supposed to get a deal with Polygram Records through a production deal with House of Pain, but it fell through. So that was like, the, you know, we were really upset about that. But, um, but I never give up. So right after that, Jim Carrey movie for Mask called us to do a, a track for their soundtrack. So I went to California. And when I came back from there, you know, there's people interested in giving us a record deal. But when I came back from, from California um, on the red eye, I stayed at uh, my girlfriend's house at the time, Donna. And my brother went back home. And I was in, you know, I was going through some really big drama at home. I had a stepfather that we, you know, uh, that it wasn't good and I, I was forced to move out. So my mother was just in, in, in the process with Donna to fix up a little apartment for me. And, you know, that's a long story. We can go into detail another time, but they went out to get us breakfast and we were supposed to hook up because um, we just got back from doing this song for this movie. And she wanted to hear all about it. And my mother, my mother, Dropped off my little brother at school. My brother was six years old, my younger brother, because my mother had two more children after, you know, with her second marriage. And um, she went to go get his bagels. And you know, some of the mother would go, oh, my son's at home. I'm going to go get him. And she went to go get me a drain stop for my new apartment because I haven't seen my new apartment. She fixed it up. Don and her painted it. They put tiles down. It was just oh, such a shitty little apartment. But for me, it was the world, right? And... You know, she went to the store and, and uh, she never came back. She was killed by a hit and run with my with uh, my little sister that was four years old. And she was about 43, 42 years old. And I we lost our biggest cheerleader, our biggest uh, reason for doing what we did. And and, and it changed our lives. And it, you could imagine it just it really shook everything that we had because anything that we knew, um, you know, came to that point where it just got destroyed um and it took us it really took us like some real soul searching to say okay we can't let her, let them die in vain we, the lords of brooklyn has to happen now and we have to keep, move on and carry on and 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 yeah and then you know amanda came with through with that deal with rick rubin and we got signed to american records and we had our our record came out saturday Night fever was the first single and all in the family was the record and yeah, and we the, we got our biggest thing was we thought we were going to be uh, our career could have ended on that note, right? Of getting the deal. I mean, for us, the odds were so great against us. 
getting getting on video music box with Ralph McDaniels. It was like a local video show. We we thought we did it. We're like that was it. Like, but um, obviously, it just was where the, where where the ride begins. Wow. Yeah. It's uh, you know. We have a, we hear a lot about four year old sister. Yeah, sister. There she they were was... hit by a hit and run driver. And uh, Jesus, one of the things he had done, and there's been it's been there for for ages, was a mural of his sister and his mother, and it's been on the side of a building forever. And then all of a sudden, De Blasio in the last year or something decided I want to clean up the city, and had the mural painted over. Oh. And it was a beautiful piece of art. Now it's like my life's intersected with with him. Short, you know, not too long later, yeah. I asked him, you know. You know, how'd you end up out on that first warp tour? He came, they played the first show. Yeah. They were out there in, in New York with me for in 1995. We heard about this tour that was the first tour of its kind that had a skateboard ramp and it was like a skateboard tour and it was a punk rock tour. And we were like, yo, that sounds cool. Let's like, oh, but it's in a parking lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you want us to play the you want to play the fucking parking lot. We were like, all right, whatever. Like, get the Cadillac, get the boys together. We got the cat, you know, Seamus and the crew and the boys and the and the and the Cadillacs. And we rolled out with our leather jackets on and our foot doors. And it was like the middle, I know it was like the middle of the summer. It's like, welcome to the warp tour. It's gonna be very fucking hot every time you <laughs> anytime you hear the warp tour, think of like 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 extra, extra hot. Like playing and we're there with the leather jackets on and, and we're doing our thing but <laughs> we get to meet you and uh the other the other you know the other group we got to meet um that that found out they were fans of ours was sublime and that became where they offered us from that to go on tour with them for the uh three ring circus tour that became pretty legendary with wesley willis us and sublime and got to and we really got to go out to California and, and really go through those deep, the deep cuts in California and, 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 and hang out with Sublime. And that was pretty, pretty amazing. And I, we wish we, we got to stay on the Warp Tour, but that was our introduction. It was one and done, one show. But I guess, I guess we left some sort of impression on you, right? Trust me, at this point, we're just hanging on. Like Warp Tour, first year in 95, we were just barely hanging on. Right. And it was like, we're getting there and all of a sudden somehow it was like, Hey, can these guys jump on that local show? Uh, at that point, sure. And uh, they came out, you know, we, it was a day also I sent sub. I'm glad he met Subline before later in that day when I kicked him off the tour and sent him home. You for a guys while. were both just kids at the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I sent Sublime home later that day. So I'm glad he met him in the morning. Cause <laughs> I don't know if he would have had that opportunity when I think back upon it. Like he said that for him, that moment was just the beginning. They thought they had arrived, but right. it sounds like like everybody's career, there's a long road. And yeah, so let's hear about that road right now. A lot of these record labels would only give you one shot to get up at bat, unless a record label really, really invested a lot of money and time into you. I mean, they, I mean, the, the deals were considerable uh, deals, but we had something that we kept on getting deals because it, the music was good, but the deal was is like, at the time when they were trying to break the Lords of Brooklyn, Warner Brothers was, it was, what was on the charts at the time was Nirvana, was mm. super huge. And then it was like Snoop Dogg. So try to break a band like the Lords of Brooklyn. Is it, is, you know, is it hip hop? Is it rock? Is it this? Is it that? It's not easy for like a, uh, to wrap your head around to get that radio play. I mean, we became pretty huge overseas and that's what happens in Japan and Europe. And, and our single got moderate success, but we didn't get the radio success that, let's say, the House of Pain got or, or, or some of our other peers. And when you, when you, the, the labels, that they only gave you one shot. You know, it, it wasn't like multiple singles and working in the record. You got one, one shot to work a single. And if the single didn't jump the way it, it popped off, you, pre, you became a write-off. And if, you know, you became, you know, like, oh, you know, I don't think it's going to work. And for young kids, it fucks you up, you know, because you spend your life coming into this record, right? Like you write in your, your heart and your soul and you got so much riding on it in your neighborhood and your, your neighborhood's behind you. And then they give you one shot up the back. I'm like, come on, man. There's people that have created incredible art that have an opportunity to allow themselves to grow but, you know, it's a business, it's a music business, and, and people are going to put money behind stuff that they're going to have a return on their investment. So is it fair? No. 
is it reality? I totally understand where he's coming from. Quite a few years went by. And I, I hadn't re really heard from about Lords of Brooklyn or, or what was going on. Then all of a sudden I was going, I asked him, like, how did we reconnect? A lot of people out there, if you know Kevin Lyman, um, he answers his calls. And I, I think I, I pleaded my case real fast to you. And, and I think whatever if we if we left any kind of impression on you from the just being on your first one, you're loyal because you're like, you are my first one. Come out. We'll find a place for you and come out, find a place for you might be a tent. It might be, uh, you know, might be in front of the venue. It might be any of these things, but you always give a, a shot to people that, that you are loyal to. And, and, and so we, uh, you know, we got into Winnebago. We raised, we raised some capital capital from a, from a friend that was on wall street, you know, 50 grand and a Winnebago. And we went out to the warp tour and, and we had a new record that we, we, we put together and, and that was it. We, we added a band to our, our lineup and we, you know, we went out there. And I, I think our friendship and relationship uh, was built on you were watching us work hard and you were like, oh, these guys work their asses off. And, and I think another thing about the Warp Tour, people know about this about Kevin, is Kevin gives you, Kevin gives you a choice. And this is the choice. The choice is like this. It's like you can wake up at the crack of ass and meet me here to find out where I can put you on a stage that I might have room for you. If you're not here and you're not doing the work, I, I got, I got no time. For, I got, I can't waste my time. There's other bands that I have to pay attention to. So I would make sure that I would get up and get over there. And then also the kind of uh, street marketing, we would make posters, we would make whatever we had to do, fucking trucker hats. We would paint trucker hats. We sat in tents and we were like, you know, humble, man, like major record bullshit. The egos were out the door. We were like back to grassroots marketing. We went back to like painting graffiti on trucker hats to pay for the gas. And we really embraced the soul of the tour. And like groups like Rancid were like, they would remember like groups that knew of the Lords of Brooklyn were giving us shout outs on the main stage and they were welcoming us into this punk rock tour. And I felt it was pretty cool. And I felt it was pretty punk rock that a hip hop band was on a punk rock tour. And I think, you know, we, we definitely made in the, uh, our impression. And, and then, you know, you, you invited us back a couple of times by hook or crook. And uh, yeah, we found a home and a family there and my friendship with you. And like, so brings me back to the mentor things, like finding you as a friend and the mentor, it just really, uh, it really brought back the faith that I had in, in the, in the, in the business, uh, humanity and, and, and finding a dear friend in you and learning from you on how to work maybe 10% of the country instead of trying to work, you know, think about, uh, uh the fucking whole globe, you know, like, okay, you were like, find the core, find 10% of people that are real and, 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 and work it. And, and when we'll see what happens, we started becoming good friends, you know, and it was almost like fun. He'd ride on my bus quite a bit. He had this motorhome with all his friends, the buddies, but he'd somehow fall asleep on my bus a lot. You know? <laughs> so we were hanging out. It was out, the most comfortable bus. But we ended up uh, becoming friends. And I was almost like, it was like a challenge for him because I was learning from him because I'm always interested in like that city lifestyle. You know, I grew up yeah. in Southern California. So we would talk about that, which later turned into me coming out one time. And I said, I want to throw a block party in Brooklyn. I, that's I like one of my goals like you know oh, I like, that'd be great so i literally had him get me a barbecue he had to like, find a place to get a rent a barbecue and in front of one of his other businesses we set up like literally on a saturday afternoon and and back then you know the cops knew everyone so they threw a few barricades up in front of the street like unofficially and we had this block so you party. had your block party dream because oh, of him yeah That's and i was cool. like sending his kids to the store you knew they were like little caves because i'd give them 20 for two packs of hot dogs and they come back and go, I go, where's the change? And they go, no, that's what it cost. You know, <laughs> it was like, so we had, you know, but this friendship we had went both ways. So all of a sudden I'm like, I'm going to take caves whitewater rafting. Oh, we're going to take caves skydiving. Oh, we're going to take caves, like all these outdoor adventures. I taught him how to fish. I got him outside. Well, he said that in the segment, he really saw you as a mentor. And I've, I've heard this as a reoccurring theme from you and your lessons learned over your career. And he said it, and it, he said it slightly here. You told him to go find that 10%. Yeah. He, he understood he needed to find for his group 
and his his art, that niche that would really appreciate his group and his art. He said that just that, and you taught him that. So I'm, I think that served him well. It took a long time getting there. Yeah, but he found his tribe. It's, right, it served him very well, and we'll be finding out how well a little later in the episode. But but at this point, I was like a mentor or a disciplinarian. I wasn't, you know. Demo, my demographic. So I was getting aging up a bit. My crowd was staying real young. So it was always fun to have someone that you could also talk about your family and some sure. of those other things you could and do. There's just people on the road and people you meet in life that just click. After a few years, we, we had a little other discussion, I guess. As I started getting older and we, you know, I think one year, you know, it was a tough uh, pill to swallow. Um, when you, when you, when you told me, I mean, like we, 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 you would, I would, you would let me ride your bus and we would hang out and, 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 and talk at night. You know, you had a tough thing in telling your friend, like, hey, you, you, you're aged out for this tour. And you probably need to start thinking about where your career is going to go when the music's over. And it was, you know, it was, it was hard. It was hard for me to hear it because the dream is always the music, right? We always put the music. But then I was saying to myself, you know, why am I trying so hard in the music when, when my graffiti art and my art comes so easy to me, you know? And, and I'm like, you don't like, the music's always going to be there for you, but your art is, is what, you know, is, is something that never failed you. So um, I started painting again and really going in uh, on canvas and really honing my, my work as a fine artist and a graffiti artist. And, the opportunities started opening up for me and started to really uh, people instead of chasing the dream, the dream was coming to me and, and it was starting to like, you know, I put 20 years into tattooing and, and over 40 years and, uh, you know, 40 years in, 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 in graffiti, 42 years in graffiti. But now the fruits of that labor started to, you know, come, come around with big brands coming to, you know, get at me. I forgot to mention that some of the businesses we were, when we had the Lords of Brooklyn in the beginning, the way I marketed the Lords of Brooklyn was on t graffiti on T-shirts. We had the first graffiti store in New York City by graffiti writers called BMT Lines, which onto itself was the, the beginning of the street and the whole streetwear stuff that was popping off in New York. We were one of definitely, and you can count them on their hands, we definitely made our mark as street, like with, with our clothing brand. Um so we had that store as well that we had for a while as the Lords of Brooklyn grew in success. Um, that store was a big, big part of it. And um, so streetwear brands, you know, we did we did tons of that stuff. And then later on, Beaujolais Nouveau, uh, the, the famous French holiday wine. I was the first graffiti artist to do their label. And then Aston Martin and Jaguar. Awesome. And, uh, uh, AP watches. I mean, so... I've been very fortunate to, to, to kind of find my way um, with the with the paintbrush and spray can again. Aston Martin and, and Jaguar, he did these beautifully custom cars for them. And and at one point, they they gave him a car to drive around Brooklyn for a year. What? One of the, yeah, it was like a pretty cool deal. You know, he, it was a pretty good deal for him. I want to be him. a graffiti you know, and, and during this time, he's also, you know, now he's like, you know, he's got the tattoo shop and, you know, he's working and, People were starting to look to him to, you know, charities and things for his art. He's been very generous with that throughout the years. I've always seen you uh, give more than you get. And I think eventually uh, it just comes back to you. And uh, like years back, um, I was asked to, to sit on the board of the Jam Master J Foundation and run DMC, childhood idols. So I did that for, you know, I did that for quite a few years. Um, uh, in the Jam Master J Foundation, trying to find money to, for inner city schools um, for the music programs. And then I just did God, uh, God Love We Deliver. I just had a, uh, an auction of an of a art cow that was sold for 22 grand, which went to that, uh, you know, went to that organization. So that, that, was a, that was a great success. Then it's all of a sudden, you know, he's now got children of his own, but he's like, okay, I, the next phase of their life now we're entering, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, of their children getting older. And the next thing, uh, venture he did had a lot to do with one of his children. This is all stuff like the creative energy's going and I always try to like give back. So I, I opened, at one point, my son asked me about his future and my, my son was, you know, turning uh, 
you know, he's getting up there where he's going to college. And I, I said, what are you going to do? You know, I, I thought maybe he's going to be, you know, following my footsteps or somewhat, my ego. Right. Um, but he said he wanted to be a chef because he was always turned. He was, he, he was always really inspired by our Sunday dinners, making meatballs and sauce and everything. And I said, well, that's pretty cool because I've always wanted, you know, I've always had this fantasy of, of, of perhaps doing something with food or maybe a speakeasy or something to go with the tattoo shop. And, you know, I'm an old soul. So I've, I always romanticize it like something old school. But when I had the, when, when an old restaurant in my neighborhood was, was, there was a very famous restaurant that was like a neighborhood icon that was up for sale. And it was a Lentos pizzeria. It was a family operated restaurant from 1933. Uh, there goes, you know, my, my, I was like, nah, I think I would love to jump in and do a pizzeria, right? So um, found some cats that wanted to get down and, and, and opened up this pizzeria. And Kevin, when it comes to all of these businesses and, and being an entrepreneur all these years, the restaurant business has to be the toughest business yeah, because it's a production. <laughs> and you know this from the Warp to Warp, Warp to maybe second <laughs> Walk to how many shows you produce in one summer. The restaurant, you have to produce this every night and it never stops. You get one day off and it's a production that never stops. So designing it, creating it, coming up with the recipes. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm an art director. That's what I do. But when it came to operations, it really took a toll where it was, it was a t- one of the toughest things I ever, I ever did, you know. Um, but I was lucky that I had supported the neighborhood because I've been loyal to my neighborhood all these years. I had supported my family and it became a family operated restaurant. When I brought my kid's sister that um, was managing an Italian restaurant for 20 something years, I brought her into the restaurant. My son got out of CIA school for cooking. He got back in the kitchen and he's been slinging the, the, the craziest pizzas for, for the last uh, couple of years now. So this week, the 12th is our, fifth anniversary for the Brooklyn Firefly. One of my highlights with the restaurant was to see you and Fran walking that door on opening night. My, you, 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 you definitely overwhelmed me with, with, uh, the love and support for you guys to take a trip out there and be there. I was at that. You didn't know you went to an open house. What was that like? We just, we didn't tell anyone we were coming. I think we told Peter, his friend, Brooklyn Pete, and we just uh, like showed up at the front door. Oh, that's great. Super fun. And you heard earlier, he mentioned Donna who fixed up that first apartment. Well, Donna became his wife. Oh, cool. And And they've been together and they have four children and raising them. And they're four diverse people that have a little bit of each of them. But Donna is referred to as the saint from Fran, being the saint behind and helping it. Because you can see with Caves, he was had a lot of things in his He's mind, a lot, a lot of things lot of balls in the air. They were going through some old photos and they looked at the photos and Caves saw something and it brought it to Donna's attention. After all these kind of like years of doing this shit, she's become an incredible uh, uh, editor. So she was a graphic designer by trade. And then um, she did all the Lords of Brooklyn stuff. And but when I needed to do music videos, when we were on our own independently, she turned around and learned how to edit and and built herself to be a brilliant. She's working with Sasha Jenkins now, which is he's he's a he's a, a lifelong friend. That's a great director. But Don has been editing um, and she's been doing really amazing at it. So she's found her her thing. You know, a friend Jojo sent me a photograph last night of me breakdancing in like the like 86th Street was the busy part of the neighborhood where I used to put a uh, cardboard out with a hat and collect money and break dance. You see in the picture all the way to the right behind the, there's a crowd around me and you see this little girl watching me. This is three years before I met her and she's there in the crowd watching me. And so she's been having my back and supporting me since 1980. Six, we, we got together, and she's been the secret weapon really behind all what we do. Donna is one of the amazingly talented per- people I know. She she edits. She learned all this stuff herself. And, I you know, I wanted to get her in this episode a little bit because they've done a song called The Brooklyn Way. Mm-hmm. And we talked about what The Brooklyn Way is. The Brooklyn Way is getting it done, uh, whether you have the means to do it or not. It's sort of figuring it out. Um, any means by any by hook or by crook, 
doing it on your own and, and just getting through it and getting it done. That's the Brooklyn way. Kind of like our television show. Yeah, just get it done, <laughs> you know? Just do it, man. He's got, you know, music. There's pizzerias. There's this. But there was this project that he had started a long time ago that, that's going to lead into almost the next episode. But we're going to touch on this a little bit. And he's going to talk about the, these characters he created. In between record deals 20 years ago, I'm sitting in a pizzeria and I'm doodling on a, on a napkin. And I'm always first love, passion was cartoons. And any, any kid that's an artist will tell you 20 cartoons that shaped their life. I was doodling this, this, these little characters at the time. And if I was inspired by the Sopranos or, or the Munsters, this was, this was something I created and it was called the Family Mooks. And I did it. And I, you know, at, at first, you know, I was figuring out how, how I can get it done. I thought it was going to be a, a, a brand for an, uh, an Italian ice or something. I thought, you know, I was trying to figure out how. So eventually, um, Mass Appeal magazine uh, put it in as a comic strip in the back of the magazine. Sasha put it in there. And, you know, it was it was incredible because it was this cartoon, this gangster cartoon, this dysfunctional gangster cartoon that that part mobsters, part monsters. And I tried my best at the time shopping it and doing all that stuff, trying to get a show for it. And it was one of those things like, again, I was ahead of my time, ahead of the curve. And I, you know, I got discouraged because I had it for a couple of years, like working it hard. And I put it away in the draw of caves uh, ideas. And I got a lot of them, like, like Ralph Cramden, I got a lot of ideas, but I always loved the MOOCs. And it was a passion project that I, I felt like I could never put down. So every once in a while I open up the draw and I take out the mooks, I draw a new character, come up with a new idea. So then I had a friend and m myself, we started writing again. And, um, and I'm like, okay, maybe this has a shot that, you know, and I shopped it again. And it's still ahead of its time. And, and man, all these years later, I have a, a, an attorney and a family friend that's been our fam uh, in, uh, friends in our family for a very long time, been very supportive of my career. He had a group of gentlemen that he brought to me that said they want to meet you. They're really impressed by, you know, your art and who you are. And when they told me about the NFT platform, you know, I heard a lot of, you know, the, I heard a lot of this stuff going, oh, it's this, it's that, it's, it's a pyramid scheme. It's just, I, I was trying to, but when they, when they came and, and discussed, when they really broke it down to me and it opened up this dialogue for a new narrative. And I'm, I, you know, I'm a storyteller, Brooklyn folklorist. I'm like, when, when I seen that this was a key into a way to tell a new narrative and where the artist has control and the artist is directly um, attached to, to their um, collector, I said, man, you cut out all the bullshit and the middlemen and every, the gatekeepers. And so this company, Doodle Labs, these, these, these Brooklyn guys um, created this company, this NFT company. And when I, when I told them, when I pulled out the MOOCs, I said, it's, this isn't about caves. This is something about, it's a little, it's a little bit more about, it's for everyone. It's broader. It's more, you know, and they fell in love with it. And I, and I said, wow, to bring the MOOCs back to life now on this platform, this could tell the story of the MOOCs and God knows where it can go because now the NFT collector becomes part of the story and it becomes more immersive. And there's all these options because this is where the future is going. And if you're not, you should really look into it because it's a lot more than just selling art digitally on the, on the, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot bigger once you really wrap your head around. Cause I have kids and I see what they're doing. My 14 year old is, 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 is wants to be a programmer. He's talking about the metaverse. He's talking about, I got 11 year old that's TikTok and, and, you know, and we were hip hop and punk rock and people. So we were crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Like these things, it was finally I felt like after COVID when I put when when I started doing the well, drawing the MOOCs at, at home, um, I felt finally the time is right. I feel like the timing is there. So they really felt incredible about it. Um, you can go to OpenSea and you could you could you could even buy in the secondary market. So they they were like, no, believe us, this thing is gonna go over. And they and and when they told me that they're building it out of a small community 
of only 2,000 people, I thought of the Warp Tour. I was like, you have a small community that holds this much influence and power? I said, yo, you don't have to tell me anymore because I'm like, this thing could be something that could be incredible. So I was always hoping and dreaming that, wow, this could be something. But I didn't think it was going to be as something as when it hit. Okay, so that's the big tease. All right, tell me, what's the big hit? <laughs> Come on, why are we stopping there? Don't stop it there. And I wanted to uh, actually ask Matt Dweck from Doodle Labs, like what attracted, you know, this is a new thing that a lot yeah, of- like why were they so attracted? Why did he say- even even the artist needed to be convincing. Doodle Lab said, you don't get it. This is going to go. And he's like, how? You know, but he hit on that sense of community. And that's what that's what now it started resonating with me as I've been trying to figure this out and learning more and more. It's about hyper-servicing a community. It's how do you, and it goes back to me telling bands, I mean, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, sitting in front of my bus, I go, the goal is at that point is to have a hundred thousand fans. Right. And if you could figure out how to monetize 10% of those fans, whether they buy at that point, buy a single for sure. a dollar, buy a ticket, buy a piece of merchandise. If you could figure out how to monetize 10% of your fans a month, you're going to have a great career. All you need is a hundred thousand music fans. You don't need to have these billions in mass marketing, hyper servicing the fans. And really that's what we're going to start talking about here. But let's, you know, ask Matt, you know, what attracted him um, and Doodle Labs to Mr. Cave. Cave was introduced to us through a mutual uh, mutual acquaintance that we had. And uh, we were lining up um, some artists. Our platform was going to be releasing new one new project a month. And then I, I sat down and met with Mr. Caves and uh, I loved his story and I loved his history. And I really felt there was just so much there to be told. Um, and, and when you release an NFT, um, it's, it's, about, it's about the art, but it's also about the story. And uh, he, we got introduced and, and Caves really dove into this right away when he when we explained to him the NFTs and I, he came up to our office and I walked him through the history of the NFTs and I showed him the CryptoPunks, which are like the first NFTs ever made. And then I took him to Artbox's site and I showed him the Board Apes Yacht Club and it really all connected for him. Uh, and he said, yeah, we're going to build a community and I can interact with my, my collectors. And he said, uh, I have this project, the family MOOCs that I created uh, a little over 20 years ago. And I'm like, what's a MOOC? I don't know. I don't know what a MOOC is. <laughs> and then uh, he's like, why don't you come up to my studio and uh, I'll show you. And I walked into his studio and he had this uh, painting that he had done of the family MOOCs over 20 years ago. And I said, wow, this is this is something. And uh, from there, we, we, we worked together to create and bring the family moves to life. That's what we're going to explore in the next, uh, next episode, Tony, like where this all went, because uh, it was life-changing in many ways. And it makes me curious as to how that bodes for the future, not just for, for artists in this world, for, you know, but image artists, but I'm talking musicians and, and actors. I mean, this is cross transcending to every art form. And I think that's what we're, we're, we're trying to figure out right now where it's going to fit. And I think in the next episode, we're going to explore that. Caves had a few parting words before we left. I've always been close uh, to the street and, and to be relevant in, in music and art, you have to be. But at the same time, you, you love a lot of people, you lose a lot of people and it's been tough. And, and, this was something that just definitely, uh, you know, it, it, it came together and it was a blessing and, and um, but really a lot of hard work for many, many years. So, um, yeah, we're, we're fortunate. And I'm just kind of like I'm pinching myself and but it gives me now the freedom to really keep being creative. And that's what it gives you. It gives you, you know, the, you know. Another shot to keep uh, doing your thing. I want the next episode. I want to know what happened. I want to just, you know, thank, uh, you know, everyone, you know, that joined us on this. It, it was great for me to hear that story. I even picked up little things that I didn't know about him. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit about my friend Caves, Tony. And, Very cool. And uh, if you ever get to Brooklyn, you know, of course, drop by the Firefly. Is and he still in town? He was here last night, right? Yeah, he was over. Yeah, oh, he'll probably be right over on. this afternoon. But I think we're just going to have a little... 
chill because there's still a lot of people here last night. <laughs> And uh, yeah, Kevin, we're going to try to hang out and constantly party. super fun. And then, uh, yeah, we're going to get to the ep- next episode. So I'd like to thank our producer, uh, Xavier Bradley. Who was bright eyed and bushy tailed this morning here on time. I know he was like, scared me. He came in the back door. I was like barely up, like <laughs> opening the door. And, and uh, Beata is here Beata's too. Beata's sitting over there. Hi. Enjoying the morning. And uh, uh, Vivian south there somewhere. And uh, <laughs> And we always like to say... Thank you, Diego, for the music. Can't take it away! (laughs) 